You're listening to No Lies Radio, coming to you 24-7 from the San Francisco Bay Area, north of Berkeley. Your radio station for the truth, peace, justice, freedom, and more power to the people. Welcome to Sci Saturday, Explorations in Paranormal Research. Today, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney of theparacast.com spend an evening with Richard M. Dolan, author of UFOs in the National Security State. During this extended conversation, you will hear a compelling description of the possible impact if it were disclosed that UFOs are real. Today's show is broadcast courtesy of theparacast.com. You can listen to the latest show from theparacast.com, broadcast every Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Go to theparacast.com to listen. Now, on to today's show. Well, we get letters, we get messages, and sometimes the messages are from people who aren't happy with what we did. What else is new? Of course. And anyway, regarding that appearance of Dr. Roger Lear in our June 17th show, a listener says the allegations from Daryl Sims that he didn't discover the implant, Sims did. They were in a corporate partnership together, etc., etc. Why didn't we ask Dr. Lear about it? Simple answer. Well, here we are. We've got Lear on. We've got lots of questions to ask him about things that are relevant to the field. The big issue is, are we going to sidetrack off into personality issues between him and Sims? Now, given that I personally didn't think much of what Sims had to say on the show, and I like having Dr. Lear on the show, I, I didn't see much of a reason to. And the other thing, as Dr. Lear said before the show began, he didn't want to get involved in personalities, period. Yeah. Yeah. So asking him on the air to answer a question that he would not answer would be unproductive. It wouldn't serve anybody's interest, so he didn't do it. And it turns out he did say some sort of roundabout derogatory stuff about Sims anyway. Um, he was very politically correct about it, though. And again, it, ultimately it comes down to does it serve a purpose to get off into that tangent? Do we get any closer to understanding anything about these things that Lear is pulling out of people's bodies? And no, I don't think we do get closer to any answers by pursuing the personality issue. And you know what, Gene? As our listeners are very quick to point out, we do enough of that anyway. Right. This time we decided we'll focus on the issues because it doesn't matter in the end whether Lear is right or whether Sims is right. In the end, we want to know what's happening in the UFO field. What's going on? What are all these alleged abductions about? What's the nature of these implants? I actually thought we got some useful information out of Lear, including that really interesting frequency. And the same forum member who posted the message uh, sort of complaining about or criticizing us about not addressing these issues to Lear also mentioned that he hopes that I'll uh, really follow up with another place to have the materials tested. And um, I'm in the process of trying to do that. Of course, it's, it's hard to do that without a budget. So that's one of the real interesting hurdles But um, I'm doing what I can to see if I can find a reputable uh, metallurgical lab that will take a look at this and give us something close to an objective read on what this thing actually is. So, yeah, yeah, that's much more in line with what we want to do on the Paracast. And I've been accused via private emails and on the forum of being sort of this confrontational (laughs) uh, crazy. And 
ultimately, it's hard to keep opinions and personalities out of this gene. So in this case, we were non-confrontational. Yeah. And guess what? We still get criticized, whether you well, are one way or the other. Somebody will find a way to object, so we just have to do what we felt was necessary in this case. Dr. Lear has a lot of information to present, and after that interview was recorded, we got this letter in all caps. Oh, God. From Daryl Sims. Oh, man. I won't say anything more about the letter. All caps, you know, signify something in the online world. It's the equivalent of shouting, ladies and gentlemen, and we don't like to be shouted at. Ultimately, I wonder if Sims ever listened to the episode that we did with him, and I wonder if he listened to the episode that we did with Lear. I'm guessing that he didn't, and I think that's what happens a lot of the time. We get people who make noise about things, and ultimately, they're responding to a perception, not to the reality of what actually happens. So, at this point, you know, when we were originally going to have Sims on the show, all of those incredibly bizarre emails he sent off ahead of time to us with all of these strange things about him wrestling alligators in a bathtub in Queens, New York, surrounded by pygmies who were throwing Twinkies at him, except the Twinkies didn't have cream filling. Instead, they were full of baby scorpions, and the Twinkies were exploding on the alligator that he was fighting, and the little baby scorpions were getting in his eyes and his mouth and his nose, and how he invented an anti venom serum for the baby scorpions but because of the the stuff that's in a Twinkie it wasn't working right I mean some of that stuff he sent us was just out there I really think that if we get the answer to that we'll know exactly what the solution to the UFO enigma is don't you think and what do alligators and baby scorpions and Twinkies have to do with the UFO world I mean that might have something to do with the well maybe they're extraterrestrial Twinkies I don't know I think that's a redundant statement I think extraterrestrial Twinkies yes brought to you by I Kenner. I think all Twinkies are indeed extraterrestrial in nature, Gene. So yeah, you're, you're, it's a redundant thing to say the extraterrestrial Twinkies. That's true. We cannot be redundant and repeat well, ourselves. Well, sure we can. Extraterrestrial Twinkies. Extraterrestrial Twinkies. The extraterrestrial Twinkies will be opening for Van Morrison this weekend at Madison Square Garden. You know, there probably is a band out there that will resent our reference to them on this kind of show. The Butthole Surfers. I love those guys. I'm talking Give about Ains. the what, extraterrestrial what? Twinkies. Um, moving down to Florida. Boom, 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 boom. And I'm going to bull me a perfect game. Hey, what? coming what? up next on the Paracast, we have... This isn't the Paracast. No, 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 no. This is the this is the new Butthole Surfers Hour. Yeah, I'm Gibby Haynes. Oh, okay. And this is the Butthole Surfers uh, album hour, and we're going to talk about paranormal things and Kool-Aid pickles. <laughs> so it's not true you do a really knockdown, drag-out impersonation of Jabba the Hutt, right? Well, you'd have to ask my girlfriend. Coming up next on the Paracast, I hope, Richard Dolan. <laughs> Yay! Cool. He's like, he's back? He's back. Excellent. Mr. Dolan, since we spoke last, there's been all sorts of news in the media about all things UFO. And one of the things I'd like to ask you is that um, I noticed that this spring you spoke at the International UFO Congress. And I'm curious about your thoughts about that event in terms of the people who speak at this and the people who attend. What did you find? And was it the first time you spoke at this? No, no. I've, I've spoken there, I think, twice before that. I think this is my third time there as a speaker. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very familiar with that conference that's put on every year by, by Bob Brown and the late Terry Brown, who just passed away, actually, that, that week, that weekend. Really? Ooh. Yeah, it was it was a, a sad thing. I got to know Terry a bit and really liked her. The International UFO Congress in Laughlin, Nevada, is it's unique in a lot of ways. I mean, one, it's usually 
among the best attended UFO mm -hmm. conferences that you'll find in this country. Typically, they'll get anywhere from six to 800 people attend, which is really quite large. Uh, now, they've had problems in the last couple of years trying to keep that attendance at the levels they want, but basically, they're still, I would have to say, the best attended conference that you'll find in the United States. All right. It's also different because the tone of a lot of it is going to be, it's a lot more new agey, let's say, than you'll get at other types of UFO con conferences. Uh, like MUFON, of course, has always tried to promote what it calls scientific ufology. You don't get a lot of new age stuff at a MUFON conference. Um, I just came back from a conference, in fact, in Italy uh, a month ago. Same thing. The Italians uh, that I met with were very scientific, very political, in fact, as well, in their take on the UFO problem. You go to a place like Laughlin, and it's... Um, it's similar to, to what you get at Roswell as well. Uh, there's a, a very um, kind of fun, a little more relaxed of an atmosphere. So that's always different. And if you're not used to that, the, the first time you go in, if you're expecting some kind of serious, you know, guys in white shirts and, and ties, well, you're not going to get that. It's very, um, it's very Western, very kind of laid back. I have a good time when I go to Laughlin. There's some speakers that have been there that I've absolutely loved and others that, you know, really aren't my cup of tea. But when you get that many speakers at a conference, I guess uh, that'll happen. Mm -hmm. Diplomatic here, but some of this, like, <laughs> well, I know no, where you're, you're leading me here. So. <laughs> well, no, Rich, it's just that I know that in speaking to people who had gone to these uh, to that particular event this year, that there is a, a lot of the New Agey thing there. and. And in fact, um, where I got some details about the International UFO Congress that happened this spring was at this local MUFON group that meets in Westchester, New York. I'd gone to a couple of their meetings and uh, wasn't real impressed by the level of the discourse that was going on. I mean, these people are still caught up on the Billy Meyer nonsense. And, you know, when I spoke to them about what was going on, I mean, actually the two people that run this local meeting, they both attended the Congress this year, and, you know, what they said, had to tell people at this little informal meeting was that, um, ooh, Michael Horn was such a nice man, and the Michael, the, the Billy Meyer stuff is just so compelling. Look at all those clear photos. You know, that doesn't get us any closer to understanding the real nature of what's going on. I, I do know what you mean. I think the problem is that it, it's really since uh, the last... 15 years since we really had this internet, uh, the organized UFO groups have really lost control over their topic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, looking, I'm just reviewing from, from my next book, uh, The History of Ufology of the 70s and 80s and 90s and 21st Century. I was just looking at some of this today. Go back to the 1970s, there was really no question, I mean, who was in control? You had a couple of major groups that really ran the discussion. MUFON, first and foremost. CUFOS, mm -hmm. the Center for UFO Studies, uh, led by J. Allen Hynek. APRO, the Aerial Research Phenomena Organization, which is still going, run by uh, James and Coral Lorenzen. These organizations really tried to kind of maintain a scientific, some kind of scientific control over, over the field of ufology, as they were calling it. And in fact, the whole concept of ufology really came out of the late 60s, early 70s, when, when the scientific study sponsored by the Air Force, the University of Colorado's Condon Committee, Right. Said that there's nothing scientific to this, just let it go. So then as a result of that, a number of UFO researchers said, well, hey, let's see if we can try to make this scientific as we can so that we can gain respectability. And that was the real impetus in the 1970s. And as a result, you've got these major organizations trying to pursue ufology that way. The problem is that, A, we started getting all of these, these uh, kind of conspiracy leaks coming out in the, the late 70s and through the 80s. 
and some of those are, are kind of weird, you know, talking about reverse engineering and um, alien alien bodies and uh, collaboration between the government and the aliens. On the one hand, conspiracy stuff that the straightforward scientific ufologists of the 70s really weren't into. And then secondly, then you get the explosion of the Internet in the 90s, and suddenly the, I mean, what turns out, there was a very widespread public interest in uh, in what we call this new age type stuff, you know, channeling alien spirits and, and you know, telepathic communications with aliens, right. which maybe that's true. Maybe people can communicate telepathically with aliens. I wouldn't say that they can't, but suddenly you get a lot of people saying, well, I'm doing this and this. And so the field really just exploded in the 1990s, it seems to me. And the major organizations have, A, been very influenced by that, I think, to some extent, because I think they're influenced by that, and, and some of those people have maybe been joining the groups. And then, B, there, I think they've just lost control. I mean, you, go, you know, the International Congress at, at Laughlin's is a perfect case in point. It's really not anything to do with MUFON at all. I mean, there may be a MUFON uh, speaker every there once in a while who's there, but never in their capacity with MUFON. There's no collaboration. It's a completely separate thing. And it's the largest conference in the country. It's bigger than anything MUFON puts out. The MUFON Symposium every year is close to that, but it's really not the same size. So, um, you know, the cult, our culture is just, uh, it's changed in a lot of ways. And the major organizations, they don't have control over, over the culture anymore. And on, on top of that, the old guard, you know, the, the people who still are involved with KUFOS or some of these people now with, with other comparable groups like Project 1947 or... Uh, other other kinds of research, you know, very careful research groups. Yeah, serious guys. Want yeah. nothing to do mm-hmm. with uh, with any of the new age stuff. They also want nothing to do sometimes with a guy like me. The conspiracy stuff is off limits. So you've got very uh, fractured kinds of groups who studied the UFO field even more so than 30 years ago. It was always fractured. There were always people bickering with each other. But now it's at the point where the field really exploded like a nova back in the late 80s, early 90s, as I see it, and has never recovered. I mean, it's just like a, a glass that's shattered in hundreds of little pieces. So, so it, it, does <laughs> along that with mean... the decline of American culture and civilization, we're seeing a lot of this stuff, too. Well, so in your opinion, Rich, does that mean that it's going to become even more difficult to try to arrive at any true understanding or consensus about the true nature and sourcing of UFOs? I don't think that that's going to affect how we, we get to the bottom of this. And the reason is that, well, hey, in my, my own work, I'm, I don't know how much of a difference I can make, but I am really trying to prepare a book. It's going to be about 700 pages now that I think is going to lay out as clear and non-propagandistic a history as, as I can possibly do that might at least be a foundation for other researchers. There are other people, hopefully, than myself, who are trying to do similar kinds of, of things here. But I do believe that we're living in a, a very radical, revolutionary time. Uh, history is moving so fast, and I think that it's in exactly this kind of a, an environment in which change in the UFO field is, is likely to happen. For example, my own observation of the last 30 years has been that when there's a period of rapid political change, regime change in certain countries, for example, Spain in 1975 when Franco died, or Mao dying in China in 1976, mm-hmm. or the collapse mm-hmm. of the Soviet Union. Each of those three instances resulted in the release of a lot of significant UFO data that had previously concealed. And I think the reason is that there were opportunities taken by people who were on the inside who said, yes, let's, let's let liberalize things here to some extent. 
And so uh, I think that we in the United States are at a similar uh, position in which we're looking at a very, very unstable domestic political situation in which a lot of people are very, very unhappy, in which we're headed towards some possibly serious crises in terms of our domestic politics and infrastructure. And uh, who knows where we're going to be coming out of this in a few years. The other thing is that we're changing technologically so rapidly. Uh, one of my pet hobby hobby topics of interest is artificial intelligence, machine intelligence, and the future of all that. And I never pretend that I'm an expert, but I like to know what the experts think. Well, the experts think that our computers are going to be as smart as we are in 20 years. Well, yeah, yeah, that's Ray Kurzweil, who um, yeah. is, I think, absolutely high when he says that. Uh, uh, before we decide why he was high. He, he's not alone, though. <laughs> you can say it's Kurzweil. He's probably the best writer of them. Right, right. I think he's an excellent writer, but he's by no means alone in that opinion. There are a lot of very, very sharp people in the AI field who believe this. My only point is this. Um, I think it's silly for us to assume that, you know, despite the fact that our technology change in the last century has been revolutionary, that it's just going to stop now in 2007 and will continue to surprise us. No one, every time people try to predict the future, they, they go too conservatively. Think of a genius like H.G. Wells when he wrote War of the Worlds in 1895. This is less than 10 years before the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk, and Wells has got these aliens who come here, right? And how do they move around? Not even on flying saucers, not even on airplanes, but on these tripods that are walking through, you know, through the, so you couldn't even imagine something as simple as that type of flight, and that was less than a decade away. I don't think that we're able really to predict just how radical the future is going to be. And all I'm saying is that if it's not super intelligent computers, and there may be something else that happens in the next decade or two that transforms our world in ways that we're going to be far greater than the world has transformed in the past. So in that environment, I think that there's opportunities for openness on the matter, something like UFOs. I think, you know, there could be a crisis, there could be an opportunity. My suspicion is that it would be something that happens very suddenly, not gradually at all. Hey, let me just interrupt and tell our listeners, you're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Richard Dolan joins us for this evening. He's author of UFOs and the National Security State, Volume 1, covering 1941 to 1973. He's been out for several years. He's working on Volume 2, but we've taken him away from the work on Volume 2 to join us this evening. Yeah, That's right, you have, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to stay with us anyway. For at least a little while. So, Rich, yeah. about the artificial intelligence thing, that's an yeah. area of, of computational science that I've always found really fascinating. And the, re the reason I say that Kurzweil is overstepping his, his statement is that if we look at the history of research in the AI world and we look at the history of implementation, this is one area of computer science where it would appear that theory and optimism are healthier than uh, the reality of it. And, and part of that problem, I suspect, right. is the architectural limitations of the typical von Neumann um, model for, for a computer, where you have a, 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 a centralized processor, you have discrete memory that's separate from yeah. the processor, right. you have a system bus that controls how fast anything can happen, and then you have software that is written in a way that does not facilitate itself towards self-correction. All of these things are... are obstacles in the way of true artificial intelligence. And, and I, I suspect that Kurzweil would agree with that. I don't think that anything yeah. he said is, is um, 
something that he would have a problem with. I think his point is that, I mean, look, you've got people talking not just about nanotechnology, but you've got people talking down the road about quantum computing, whatever the hell that is. Mm -hmm. And if you just take something like Moore's Law, which Charles Moore and IBM million years ago in the 60s had had this rate this law which i'm sure both of you are familiar with and people oh, listening yeah. may not be but he said you know every 18 months expect a doubling in the number of uh, transistors on a on the leading edge integrated circuit and that has held that's held for over 40 years and it is expected to hold continue for i think another 15 20 years at least last time i read so in other words the power of doubling i mean that's a significant a significant thing to consider. I don't really know if Kurzweil is right or not, but I suspect that we're going to be dealing... I mean, look what we've had this in the last five years. I just got my first little nano iPod. <laughs> it has four gigabytes, which, I mean, is low compared with some, but I could have fit my entire teenage record collection on that. Yeah. No problem, man, in my little shared pocket. So we've really... We've moved a long way. And my only point in bringing up guys like Kurzweil is that... I think it is quite possible that even if the computers aren't smarter than us in, in many ways, which I'm sure they won't be smarter in certain ways, that we'll have computing power that that really could continue to transform our world in ways that we just can't see. I mean, think of how it's changed our world in the last 10, 15 years, 20 years. I, I have to assume that there's going to be new social developments in the world of, say, 2020, if we get there, that might make disclosure more possible. So that brings us to a relevant topic, that of disclosure, yeah. which is, um, you know, obviously in the world of people who obsess over UFOs, this is really the big, huge, looming question. When will there be disclosure on the, the part of the government? Rail. Right, right. Well, so, so here's the question, Rich. Um, it's that line from that movie where Jack Nicholson says, the truth, do you think you can right. handle the truth? Yeah. I mean, do, do you think people... And, well, this is what happened at this little local MUFON meeting I went to where people were talking about disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. And I posed the question, guys, what if disclosure is not what you think it is? You think that the disclosure is that these creatures are here, that we have some of their technology, that these are beings from another planet, that um, we're not sure of malevolence or benevolence. And that's a whole other topic I want to bring up later in the interview. But what if it turns out that it's nothing like that at all? Do you think people are ready to deal with disclosure if it's not what they assume disclosure will be? Oh, very well put. I have been, uh, I've been of the opinion for the last few years that disclosure is a very problematic thing. I'll first say that I believe in it, and I believe in, in, a, in openness on this because I just believe in open discourse in a society, and I don't like to um, live in a society that's based on a, a major lie, right. which I think the UFO secrecy is. On the other hand, you're raising very good points, because what if, for example, let's just ask, who would be qualified to provide disclosure? Presumably the President of the United States. Of course, if this President told us that aliens were here... That would be enough to make me think that I've been wrong for the last 12, 13 years. Well, I think whatever he says, people will disbelieve. But you know what? People don't believe Congress either, so where do you go? The whole government no. is disbelieved. Right. So but, I mean, we presume that the president's, you know, the guy to say it. So let's, let's say the president does say that there's, there are UFOs in E.T. Okay, so fine. And after the a period of disbelief, people start to think, wow, you know, he's telling the truth. So then you have hundreds and hundreds of really nasty little follow-up questions that that um, are going to be very difficult. For example, on a, on a straightforward political basis, 
what about people who've, who claim now that they've been abducted by aliens all these years? Suddenly, mm -hmm. the realization that, that some of these guys are real, the people who claim they've been abducted, is not such a crazy idea. And it becomes reasonable to assume that, that aliens are taking people out of their bedrooms. Or what about claims that the government's been hiding super-secret technology, anti-gravity, zero-point energy, whatever, something that would get us out of the oil crisis. Okay, well, that's great, except that there could be a lot of problems with that. Pretend that we have access to some revolutionary replacement technology that means we don't have to have petroleum. And what if, though, like that technology allows you not simply to heat your home for free for the rest of your life, but what if it can also make a really nifty bomb that can blow up, you know, whole cities? And what if it's not easy to control? Just what if? Mm -hmm, sure. So now, do you, do you let this out? I don't know that that's the case, but it's quite possible that the implications of that technology are such that it might be difficult to trust the world with it. Uh, what if you discover that not all these aliens get along with each other, that we're in the middle of a kind of battleground? What if? And then what if you discover that your political system has been so corrupted over the last 50, 60 years that all the money that's gone into secret R&D and research has gone around Congress, it's been completely ultra-black, and that private corporations actually are in control, not the U.S. government, which, in fact, is what I think is the case. I think so we're there. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think there's any mystery there, but... There is no mystery right. over the fact, Richard Dolan, that this is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Richard Dolan, and we're only at the very beginning of what's going to be a fascinating discussion. So, yes, I think a lot of people, more and more people, feel that the government that we recognize as our government, at least the superficial government, is totally out of control. They have no power to do anything. Yeah, I think, right, I think what they are, we've had a, we've had a revolution over the last 15 years and almost not even realized it. I, I, you call it a transnational revolution, maybe, but it's, been, it's involved the true death of nation-states as we all grew up learning about those. Mm -hmm. We still go through, we, you know, we realize that there's big corporations out there, yes, although most of us can't name them, but then we still go, walk through our life like we're in our fifth-grade civics class where we think, I'm just going to vote for my congressperson and they're going to go to Washington and vote for this and we have checks and balances and they're corrupt, yeah, but we'll throw the bums out every once in a while and get new guys. That's not, that's totally irrelevant. We don't live in that world anymore. That's gone. What we have is a world dominated by enormously powerful transnational private entities that have gotten their hooks into every damn government on this planet, including and especially the United States government, because it's the best and biggest prize of all, right? And then they love getting their hooks into the U.S. military as a tool for their personal enrichment, because it's the most awesome military tool in the world. Who would not want to control that beast? And they get control of organizations like the World Bank and the IMF, and they basically run and own the world for their benefit. And, you know, look, I mean, then there are people in those transnational corporations, the major shareholders, we don't even know who they are, try to get information on them. It's impossible. Try to get information on the major shareholders of ExxonMobil. I don't think, I don't think you can do that. It's, that's all proprietary. So whoever these people are, they're probably a lot of the same people on the boards of a lot of these transnationals, and they run the show. And we don't yeah. even know anything about them. Right. So what's the nature of our global political system even? You know, we're a far cry from 1945 and the creation of the United Nations in this, this world, you know, where we were supposed to, all the nations were going to cooperate politically and 
that's a neat idea, but that's been bypassed. That doesn't that doesn't exist. So whoever those people are, they control the policy of the U.S. military. And in fact, I'm convinced they absolutely control U.S. policy in Iraq. And by the way, I feel that we that the U.S. went into Iraq and they went into Afghanistan simply to to lay claim to um, in Iran's, Iraq's case the third largest oil reserves in the world. Because they know, Cheney knows, Bush knows, that oil is a real problem now and in the, in the future. Oh, yeah. Well, not only oil itself, Rich, but, I mean, if we start to dig deeper down into that quagmire, we find that uh, what we're really talking about is also the petrodollar versus the petro-euro and sending a real strong message to the rest of the Middle East. I mean, it's important to, to put yeah. this in the context that most Americans truly do not have an understanding of how money works. They only understand in terms of interest rates and mortgages and maybe returns on stocks, bonds, and other sorts of financial holdings. But if they start to study the, the you know, global monetary system, then, of course, we have to go down what is typically considered a fringy conspiracy realm of the Federal Reserve. And once we open that box of worms up, I mean, it just gets so ugly that it's my belief that the American psyche cannot handle this. I, I have to, uh, I, I think that that's very insightful. Is this Gene or Dave? Who am I talking to? This is David right now. Dave. <laughs> I'm Gene. I'm I listening. Okay. But, okay. Actually, I don't exist. David does both voices. Oh, I've yeah. never existed. <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> yeah, okay. It, oh, it's dude. so true what you're saying, Dave. I remember, it's, I mean, it's been a long time now since I was in graduate school trying to go through all of that, but I remember it very well. And I was, I was Mr. Grad student. Hey, man, I, I studied at Oxford. I studied in Berlin, and I thought I was hot stuff. And when I look back on my state of mind at that time, it was so utterly conventional, even though I thought I was progressive. And, but I was absolutely within a very conventional frame of mind. So if you were to talk to me about the Federal Reserve, back mm-hmm. then and right. how they control everything. I would have said, you know, you're nuts, man. What's wrong with you? <laughs> um, and it took me a number of years. Even after I started getting into the UFO field, it take, it's a matter of step by step where you get deeper and deeper into this. It, you can't go into the deep waters at first. It takes a long time. Yeah. Um, most of us live in very, very shallow waters. And even, even in the academic world, we live in very shallow waters. So uh, it was, you know, a number of years ago, I started looking into the Federal Reserve and and in fact, the creation of the Fed is, I consider, to be one of the greatest, grossest oh. crimes in American history. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, completely. And, and it's something that ordinary people, they think the Fed, well, that's a government body, right? Right? Wrong. <laughs> it's privately yeah. owned. The Fed chairman is appointed by the president. True. It's a for-profit bank. And, and the concept of the Fed is so brilliant and so simple, I'm just amazed. I mean, before the Fed was founded about 100 years ago, Congress would tax you directly for money to spend to spend that money on things. Exactly. With the formation of the Fed, you get the money directly. The Fed loans you the money, and then you tax the population to pay that money back to the Fed with interest. Mm-hmm. Simple. Well, what a great gig, man. If you're the Fed, you're giving money every year to the U.S. government. You've got a, the biggest customer in the world every year. And they're not going to negotiate for a better rate. Oh, they're not even going to audit what you're doing. It gets even better. They're not going to audit what you're doing. And then what you do under the table is gradually take away the country's gold in order to basically guarantee this transfer of money where the United States government is out, essentially outsourced the printing of currency. And didn't put any kind of audit controls on it. And it's like, wait a minute, this is as this is monopoly money where at some point someone is gonna bring a big pile of it back and go, 
I want the supposed wealth that is behind this money, and that's when the card game fails. That's when the house right. of card falls because there's nothing to back it up. And gee, people walk and not to make this the Paracast, your one stop shop for all things political and conspiracy, but. When people walk into Walmart and think they're buying a cheap product that's made in China and think they're getting a deal, man, they don't realize that one day the Chinese are going to show up on these shores, and they're not going to bring an army with them. They're going to bring a note. They're going to knock on the White House door and say, okay, guys, here's the note. We're collecting. You can't pay up, so we're evicting you now. Right. Right. People don't seem to understand this, and so ultimately, when this empire falls, it's going to go with a whimper, not with a bang. We're going to get repossessed by the same people who are propping up this government with the huge amount of money that we require at this point to even be solvent. To see, well, we're not solvent, just to keep things running, to keep the illusion going. Remember also, so, David, the repo man yeah. doesn't have to announce his intentions. He can just do it and say, wake you up one morning and say, oh, by the way, we now run your country. We now have 98% of it. We've taken control. This is it, folks. Well, right. When in Rich, fact, uh, yeah. China, well, China tried, remember, it was a year, a year ago or two that they tried to buy uh, one of the major U.S. petroleum companies. But I think mm-hmm. it was an account, if I'm not yep. mistaken. And in fact, they, I'm sure they had no problem buying it, except that Congress uh, got you know through a hissy fit and said, "No, you can't do that." Right. But um, how long? How long will that go? I mean, right now the U.S. military is substantial enough that I assume China is not going to want to risk a direct confrontation. But it's only a matter of time. They, no. they have trillions of U.S. dollars yep. that they could flood the international market with. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe, right? And China and also Japan to a large Absolutely. extent. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, these wars that we're fighting are, are absolutely uh, our ruination. I was just talking a week ago to a guy who fought three years in Afghanistan from 01 to 04. Ugh. This guy's telling me that the way they got paid was in the, the notes. They got paid in actual, you know, dollars. It wasn't just electronic. And, and they were in numerical order, like you could count the numbers. So they were obviously printed directly, <laughs> oh, and they go right into his hand. Oh. Now I'm thinking, well, that's just great for the economy. Isn't that wonderful? Just print the damn money. He says, well... You know, in the short term, it's not a big deal because that money is not going back to the U.S. economy. But in the short term, obviously in the long term, it's floating around. That that affects our economy and it will affect it big time. Anybody who wants to understand this, just go look at the history of Germany in the 1920s and learn the term hyperinflation. And uh, you will be very frightened at what you find. Also, Rich, just before I forget, I want to mention that. The, and I've mentioned, I've brought this movie up on the Paracast before. The incredibly important movie Network has a scene where Warren Beatty tells Howard Beale how the universe that we call our world works. And it basically laid all this out in 1976. And people well, felt it was entertainment. I remembered seeing it a long time ago, but it's it's been a long while. Well, they've redone it. They've got this new, you know, remastered, digitally mastered version. Yeah. It looks great on your TV set. The most important thing, though, is that ninety nine percent of it has come true. You're listening to No Lies Radio, coming to you 24-7 from the San Francisco Bay Area, north of Berkeley. Your radio station for the truth, peace, justice, freedom, and more power to the people. We're thrilled that you're listening to this archived episode of the Paracast. If you want to hear the latest shows, click on over to www.theparacast.com. You can also join in on the most intelligent and dynamic discussions on our forums regarding all of the topics we discuss on the Paracast. 
So remember, www.theparacast.com. We'll see you there soon. With Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we're spending our evening with Richard Dolan. I can't think of a better way. He's author of that terrific book, UFOs and the National Security State, Volume 1, covering the field through 1973. He's working on Volume 2, and we've taken him away from that just for a little while to talk about stuff. Well, let's get back to the topic of UFOs, because I could go off on this political tangent for pretty much the rest of my life and be very happy doing that. But and that like, might be our second show. I think well, we're almost we'll there. See. We'll have we'll, to do we, it. We, yeah. Rich is an expert in the field of ufology, and, and I don't toss that term around very lightly. There are very few people I would consider to be in any way experts on these topics because they haven't done the research, they haven't done the work. Uh, Mr. Dolan has done incredibly copious amounts of both, and he's one of the few people I think is qualified to be referred to as an expert. So, Rich, in that light, what do you think, based on what you've researched, disclosure would look like if it happened? It will look, first, extremely, it won't come until we have uh, a massive level of crisis in this society. Until people, the UFO occupants, the aliens themselves, are not going to prompt this. I mean, look, they've been here with a significant presence for many decades, at least, maybe longer, maybe many centuries, and uh, they don't seem to have been interested in coming out in the open with this. Ditto, the human secret keepers. You always get the idea that there are factions from within, from the 1950s right onto our own day. There were always movements within the national security community. Factions would develop in which leaks would were attempted to be made. So it's not a monolithic system, admittedly, on the human side of it. But there's not any kind of uh, obvious willingness that I can see that people are going to want to give this secret up. But as I was saying, here's here's the deal. All right, we are in an era right now in which we're paying over $3 a gallon for gasoline. Gas prices have gone up manifold in the last five years. Nobody is expecting them to come back down. I, I don't know of a single analyst who really believes that they're ever going to come down. And that we are now in a period of long-term permanent crisis of, of gasoline price. This is so significant. It's not just you know expensive for us to drive, but people have to understand that cheap oil has been the fuel the single most important fuel for the global monetary system and for global economic growth over the last 150 years. Mm -hmm. 100 years, absolutely. That's gone now. So think of it this way. Let's go back to 1960 and pretend that we're UFO secret keepers. And we know that there are these uh, other beings here. They seem to be doing their thing. We're not too worried about them. They've got technology that's really great. They're flying around things that are far beyond fossil fuels. So we're looking at this thinking, well, that's, that's pretty cool. But if we go that route, we're going to, A, destroy the oil industry. We're going to have economic upheaval and ruination. And why bother when we have all the oil that we're going to need for centuries and centuries? Because after all, if you're looking at levels of consumption for 1960 and the levels of discovery of new oil fields in 1960, Look, for, barrel, going up. Yeah. for every barrel of oil we were using back then, we were discovering five or, or six barrels, literally. Mm -hmm. So it just looked like this ever-expanding amount of oil, and people think, we'll never run out. Well, now the situation is reversed, and for every, bar for every barrel we discover, we're using up six barrels or more around the world. So we're, it's depleting. There's no way around this fact. When we get to a point where we are unable to produce enough oil to meet the continually rising demand, 
which has never gone down. It doubles every 15, 20 years worldwide. Then we're going to have a real crisis, an international crisis. We're going to have war, oil wars. We're already seeing it. Well, they're now. They're just yeah. going to get worse, right? Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. We don't have the luxury that people had in 1960 to say, well, let's just sit on this thing for a while. We don't want to freak people out. There's, let's, let's let it play out, and we'll, we'll see what happens. We've got oil. We're good. We don't have that because we're in a much more desperate situation. I absolutely believe that, A, we are facing a major infrastructure meltdown within the next decade if we don't find a way to get around the oil crisis, and B, that there is a solution, and that, that, that solution lies within the technology of UFOs. Now, whether they're uh, using some form of nuclear fusion or whether they're extracting energy from the zero-point field, I don't really know what the actual answer is, but I believe that there is one because I don't think that they're just using 100-octane gasoline to fly around up there. So it's got to be something. And whatever that secret is, there are people, human beings, who know what that secret is. You feel that so, absolutely, you feel absolutely confident that's the case, Rich? I would say I feel pretty confident that that's the case. Yeah. I, I feel fairly confident that that's the case. I mean, based on, confident about what? About the oil situation? I feel no, 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 we, we know that. No, 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 the, 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 the idea that there is somebody inside of the military. Oh, inside yeah, of the black op Okay. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. All right. Such a fair question, and I'm blowing right by it as if it's so obvious, and sorry about that, because it's not no, always sorry. obvious. You're, you're quite right. There have been, hey, there's been a number of what I consider to be very good leaks over the last 30 years, really starting from the late 70s with uh, people like Leonard Stringfield and then continuing on down the years. Leonard Stringfield it was a research. He was a former military guy. In I knew 70s. him very slightly, Richard, but then I'm oh. as old as the hills. You know that already. I understand that he, uh, he was a real gentleman. He always seemed like one. Absolutely. I had a few contacts with him, and I think I ordered one of his books from him. He was really a calm, gentle person, really intense researcher, though, really did some great work. I, yeah, I, 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 yeah. Right. So, well, what he did in the late 70s was simply um, cultivate scores of contacts of people within the defense community. I mean, firsthand, many of these firsthand witnesses who started out of the blue just coming to him because he seemed to be the clearinghouse for this and telling him the stories of having seen alien bodies at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base or seeing an alien craft often at Wright Pat or elsewhere. Uh, there are lots of stories dealing with Nellis Air Force Base Area, otherwise Area 51. Stringfield collected many of these and came to the tentative conclusion that there appear to have been a number of instances in which our military obtained alien technology through crash retrievals. Not just Roswell, but a number of these cases. So there's Stringfield. But then there are a lot of other pretty good quality leaks that have come out over the years. A number of people have have confirmed and supported this testimony. And I mean like high-level people. Uh, there's the famous story of, of former Skunk uh, Works had uh, Ben Rich, the man who succeeded Kelly Johnson, uh, who helped to do, was a chief, chief in development of uh, the, the stealth fighter. And Ben Rich is on the record. He's written, we have letters of his in which he's written about this topic. I know um, uh, one person who was at a lecture that Rich gave in 1993, uh, Jan Harzen, who's one of the leaders in MUFON. Jan Harzen attended a 1993 talk that Ben Rich gave, in which he talked after the official talk was over, at some length about the technology that we have and that he believed that it was important for us to let this out. And he was very explicit that it was alien technology. Uh, I myself have spoken with, I would say, three high-level people, very high-level people, 
Uh, one of whom is publicly known, and that's uh, astronaut Edgar Mitchell, and then two other individuals who, uh, unfortunately, I can't tell you who they are, but all very upper level, who have all confirmed to me that, that these programs are real, that there are secret, secret programs to study alien technology uh, and bodies. David is right now. He's just champing at the bit, ready to pounce on you. We're talking to Richard Dolan. No, we we're really appreciative of having Richard Dolan join us for this evening. He's author of UFOs in the National Security State, which is of course covering the UFO cover up from 1941 to 1973, and working on Volume Two. We took him away from that, took him away from all that for a couple of hours to talk with us about all this. So I'm going to ask the question, and David will follow up, and we'll go catch as catch can here. Okay, they have this technology. Is there anything out there now, any public development that shows that we have this technology and that it came from reverse engineering or whatever? Well, there's nothing that one could prove. I mean, because think about how, I mean, there's a few that I I suspect are the case, which I'll get into in a minute. But the reason you can never prove it is, consider it this way. All right, these programs are run through the Pentagon special access programs. What's a special access program, or SAP? Well, it's, there are estimated a couple of hundred of these within the DOD right now, 150 as of seven years ago, and I'm sure the number is much higher today. These are programs with that which have absolutely no oversight. They're classic black budget operations. We don't know how much money goes into them. What we do know in the formal studies that have been done of them, I'm not talking about UFO research studies, I'm just talking people in the defense community have looked into these, is that these special access programs more and more are appearing to be under the control, not really of DOD personnel so much as the private contractors. So here's how it would work. Uh, Let's say that I'm the representative of Lockheed and I would be the project manager of this special access program. Even though it's a Defense Department thing, I'm in charge. You might be a DOD liaison that works with me, and through you, I get funding, so you're important for that reason, but I'm the guy in charge, and what that means is I create the security classifications, all the secret top secret Q clearance, none of that applies. I create my own, and whatever that is, it is. I decide who's in the program and who's out, and on and on and on. And you could be a general with three stars on your lapel and say, well, I want in, and I would just say, sorry, you don't have a need to know. And I mm-hmm. could theoretically take my, my buddy that I grew up with and say, you're in. Whatever, it's my decision. Now, what it looks like increasingly, I mean, there haven't been many open studies of SAPs that are, that are in the open literature, only a few. But it looks, uh, in the opinion of the analysts who study these, that they are primarily dominated by private contractors. So let's say that's true. So let's say that there's this one SAP, which I am fairly certain is true, that is concerned with uh, back engineering alien technology. And let's say that it's Lockheed that's running. It doesn't have to be Lockheed. It could be Boeing. It could be Raytheon. I don't know. But let's say that there's a breakthrough that is made in the analysis of this particular piece of technology. Well, great. So guess who gets the patent on that? Well, Lockheed would. Mm-hmm. And so as far as anyone knows, you know, none of this would be traceable to some bit of ET technology. It would all just, you know, comes from the black world. It's a, it's a classified development from Lockheed, and that's all you'd ever know about it. So tracing these things absolutely positively, I, I suspect is, it's not going to be easy or even possible necessarily. Having said that, I'm going to go out on a limb here and tell you that I'm increasingly of the opinion that some of the things that Phil Corso said before he died were 
probably more accurate than not. And for the record, I've been all over the map personally in my opinions on Corso over the last couple of years. When I first read his book in 97, I've got the first edition here on my shelf. I said, there's this error, there's this error, there's this error. This is the easiest thing in the world to pick errors out of Corso's book because they were all over the place. And so I just kind of wrote it off as a crackpot. On the other hand, I've spoken to too many people who knew Corso very well. And it's the fact that Phil Corso had an, an excellent not just a good, but an excellent reputation and an excellent track record as a truth teller slash whistleblower type of guy before the Roswell book. Hmm. Yes, he did. Uh, I know people who are very responsible, very high level, who knew Corso quite well, and he told me that he was for real. The problem is that when that book came out, it was co-published. It was co-authored with William Burns of UFO magazine. And uh, I don't want to speak ill of anyone specifically, and that includes Bill Burns, but the fact is that Bill Burns has taken a lot of heat over the years for what are widely believed to be factual errors in that book. Well, was one thing that Burns said, and I wouldn't presume to make a decision on that, and that is the book had been edited by other people before he got involved in the manuscript, so maybe well, we don't... Well, take responsibility for this, then. <laughs> yes, it, it, it might be the responsibility of several people who, for whatever reason, got the book a little confused. We sure. have to, I mean, I'm willing to cut the man this much slack. He was in his 80s. I'm assuming he wasn't particularly computer literate. I'm assuming that he might have been difficult to work with. I do know, after that book came out, a few people pointed things out in the book to him, and he seemed surprised that they were in there. He was like, what? I said hmm. that. I could not have said that. So what I suspect is that, that there is truth in what he said, and unfortunately, um, that may be difficult to, to sort out. But one thing Corso did say is that he was very explicit about particle beam devices, fiber optics, lasers, all coming from, derived from studies of ET technology, also uh, improvements to the integrated circuits, Kevlar, if I'm not mistaken, also. Right. Now, again, I don't know, but I would say that Corso's thesis is eminently logical in the sense that you would have to assume. I mean, what, what's the most logical thing? Pretend you're the Air Force in this 1945, 19, or 1949, 1950, and you've got this technology. How would you do anything with it? The Air Force itself would have really no capability within itself to do very much. I mean, yeah, a couple of scientists. But if you really want to make progress with your study of a, of a piece of technology, hey, you're going to hand it off to private industry. You're going to hand it off to the people that you know who build your weapons and your aircraft because they have the resources, they have the engineers, they've got the teams that can really work with it. And so what would happen, I think, right away is that this technology would become privatized. The uh, contractors would say, yes, I'll work with you on this, but look, we want, we want some ownership over it. And, and presumably you would work out some kind of legal arrangement whereby you, the Air Force or military, would have access to this stuff, yeah, right, but that they, the private contractor, would basically own it. And that's great for secrecy, too, because now you're not, it's a private matter. So the public really has no way even of getting access to this technology because it's not a government thing. I mean, you can truthfully say, as a government uh, representative, the U.S. government doesn't have anything like that. Well, no, Boeing does, or Lockheed does, but you don't, but you have access to it. I would bet that that's exactly how it works. I spoke at length with one highly placed individual. This is a guy who knows a couple of presidents and defense secretaries who, um, hey, he's a fan of my book, and that's kind of cool. And I've gotten to meet with this person on occasion. Hey, can we make this a cliffhanger for part two? Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. very good. You're in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We'll be back in a moment with part two of our session with Richard Dolan. Welcome back to the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. 
Returning to the Paracast, we're talking with Richard Dolan, and he is author of one terrific book that David Biedney paid twice the list price to get a copy of this book called UFOs right. in the National <laughs> Security State. It's not even signed. I'm pissed. Yeah, I'll sign it. Just uh, right. you send it to me and I'll sign it. Okay, well, but send it back. I'm, I know how this works. You make me go buy another one. I know. Hey, that's how you pay twice for it. It's like he's like he's. Did I tell you about my, my business plan? That's what I, my accountant said for me to do. Sounds like you're working for Universal Music or something. Hey, we were talking before we broke for our half show break or halftime extravaganza. You were telling us about this person you knew with government right. connections and yeah, right. kind of painting the background. But now I'm getting very, very, very curious as to where you're going. You're getting curious? We're getting right. really curious. Well, a, in fact, David's thing. twice as curious as I am. In fact, we're going to spend the next hour debating over how curious we are. It's a, it's a hard thing for any researcher. I can really appreciate this now. I mean, there are researchers who get more covert context than I do, for sure. But I have enough. And, you know, on the one hand, you want to be able to uh, publicize who such and such a person is because that increases credibility, obviously, uh, to name names. But if information is given to you in confidence, what can you do? Um, it's not easy just to go break that confidence. But uh, there's a number of individuals I've spoken to who are pretty prominent in a very good position to know. A couple of them I can name, others I can't. But the one, one that I can't is a, a very senior individual with a lot of uh, experience in the intelligence community, let's just say, and um, I think is a good person. I mean, you can never really know if you're being played for a fool or not, but I, mm -hmm. I think that we have a, we're fairly open with each other about things. Uh, this one individual did confirm to me that at very, very deep levels of our national security apparatus, he said so compartmented you would be astonished at the levels of secrecy that there are scientists who have this technology, alien technology, and... Uh, according to this one person, at least one body that he personally knew about. So now, that's not proof of anything. I understand that. But I will say that when a famous, super high-level person is sitting down with you five feet from your face and tells you this, it's kind of hard to say, well, I think you're full of it. I don't think he is. I think he's telling me the truth. This same person also said to me at another point that uh, there had been a fairly high-level meeting back in the late 90s in which a senior member of the Joint Chiefs was confronted with the knowledge that there was a special access program dealing with alien technology. Turns out that Stephen Greer in 1997, along with astronaut Edgar Mitchell, met with head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs, Vice Admiral Thomas R. Wilson, in April of 97. Now, Greer wrote about this in his last book, which I can't remember the name of it, came out. You know, Greer is a, is a person in the UFO field where, I mean, some people love him and others just despise him. I don't have either of those opinions, frankly. I mean, I've met with Stephen Greer a couple of times, and uh, I think that he's done a few things that are useful and others that I, I question. Mm -hmm. But regarding this, there's no argument. He did meet with Edgar Mitchell and got a meeting with, with Thomas Wilson, who was head of intelligence at that time of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's a fact, and I know it's a fact for, for a couple of reasons. One, I was confirmed to me by Mitchell, it was confirmed to me by Greer, it was confirmed to me by Wilson himself, who I phoned mm -hmm. and talked to. So they meet with him. Now, according to Greer, and my inside sources, uh, I'll tell you about this in a second, Greer states in his book that he confronted Wilson with this information that there was a secret program within the Defense Department that was studying alien technology that was dominated by rogue entities, rogue private groups that were beyond formal government control. And Greer said that he even gave Wilson identification numbers to find these special access programs and to try to get access to them. According to Greer, Wilson tried and failed 
to do so and was upset that he wasn't able to, to gain access. Now, the question is, is that true? You know, Greer puts this story out, and, and researchers never even bother to comment on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a lot don't believe it. Well, it so happens that before that book came out, before I even knew about that meeting, my source told me about this. I knew that it had happened. What I didn't know was the name of the person they met with, and that turned out to be Admiral Wilson. But I knew it was someone very, very high up, and, uh, and all these other things that, that Greer claimed in his book were supported by my source. So with that in mind, I hunted Admiral Wilson down to try to find out where, where he was. And I knew, I mean, if I were to call this man and ask him about this meeting, there's no way that he could possibly ever confirm this. I mean, think about it. That would be enough to bring the house down. You're an admiral, retired, working in some upper-level defense organization, which he's doing, advanced space weapons. In fact, his company does this. And you were to admit that there's an ET-related back engineering program that you were denied access to as head of intelligence. I mean, holy crap. That, that's enough to bring smoking down. Smoking gun. Yeah, that's a smoking Absolutely. gun. Absolutely. I mean, aside from the fact that you'd probably lose every security class clearance that you ever had. <laughs> ever had. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that's worse, possibly, but right. Okay. So I called, I emailed him as a historian saying, I, I want to drop the bombs. I'm researching UFOs. Not yet. I didn't want to blindside him, but I also didn't want to, uh, I did want to be able to talk with him. And I thought if I mentioned I'd do UFOs, he just wouldn't want to give me the time of day. Uh, but I said, I'm researching uh, some stuff about the Joint Chiefs. And his name came up and I wanted to chat with him. And he was very cordial with me. Wrote back. He said, here's my phone number. Call me. I thought, gulp. Great. Cool. So I called him. Very, very nice at first. Relaxed. I could hear him sitting down in his office chair saying, okay, what do you want to talk about? Then I very, you know, as respectfully as I could mention the fact that I research UFOs and that his name came up in a UFO book and I wanted to know what he thought about it. Mentioned Greer, mentioned Mitchell, and he said at first, exact quote, my memory is foggy. My memory is foggy about uh, this UFO thing. And then explained a little bit more about what Greer claimed and he said, well... Yeah, I do vaguely remember that we met. That I was interested because there was someone who was an astronaut who walked on the moon who was willing to talk about this, and I wanted to give him uh, some of my attention for that reason. Uh, he said, but look, I was, I'm a busy person. I was Back then, I was working 16-hour days on Iraq looking for weapons of mass destruction. I, I don't have time for ET and all this UFO stuff. And then he got very, very curt with me. His voice got higher and higher. Uh, I could tell he was very upset, actually, and told me, I mean, point blank. He said, yes, I met with them, and that's the only true thing about it at all. The rest of it is pure poppycock. And he basically mm-hmm. said, I have to go. So he gave me pretty much what I thought he would give me, which is total, complete denial. I'm very upset about it. I, I have to say, I mean, I, that's, I can't measure that for you guys, but there's no question in my mind that my series of questions truly upset him. Mm-hmm. And I think, frankly, that it's true. I spoke to my source about that discussion word, and he said, well, what, what do you expect him to say to you? Yes, it's true. I mean, obviously, you can't, do that. You can't yeah, possibly no. do that. But anyway, so to get back to all this, what I believe is that, that we do have ultra-secret groups that have access to technology that is not made by human hands. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Biedley. You never know what's going to happen next. You're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're spending our evening. And what a fascinating evening it is with Richard Dolan. He's author of UFOs and the National Security State. Volume 1 is out. You've been working on Volume 2 for a while, Richard. Where does that stand? 
Well, you know, it was funny. A year ago, in mid-2006, I was still telling people, I think it can be done by the end of 2006. I still think so. didn't happen. I had a... Uh, I had a number of things occur in my life. Did a kind of a neat TV thing that uh, blew out my summer and then had a, a variety of other issues in the fall and winter that just slowed me down dramatically. I mean, I'm in a nice groove these days. As of a, even a couple of weeks ago, I still wasn't sure if I was going to have to split this book into two books because uh, my fear was that it was turning out to be too long. And the question was, is it going to project out to 1,000 pages or only about 700 pages? If it was going to project out to a thousand, I was uh, I was going to just cut the thing in half and uh, have a three-volume, kind of like a trilogy. But I think we're going to have two volumes. I'm thinking we're looking at about 700 for this next volume. Um, I have a lot of this book written. I keep editing down and trying to make the prose as tight as possible. Uh, to be perfectly candid with you, it's just a slower project than I had ever hoped or wanted. There is an outside chance that it can be mostly done by the end of this year. But, I mean, honestly, guys, I just, I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard work. I really want this book to be not just good. I want it to be great. I want it to be a perfect, absolutely great read. And, and so I've, I've just, I work it. I work it over. The research has been done for a long time. I have an enormous amount of research that takes it right up to uh, our own year. That's not the issue. It's the a matter of, of forming, of, uh, of having the whole thing hang together in a coherent narrative that makes sense and that does, that does justice to the many, many complexities of this topic. This is a lot more complicated than the, the first volume. And the reason is the first volume, I was really able to follow three basic stories, and uh, they sort of intertwined. Story number one was just UFO sightings. I mean, in a sense, volume one and volume two are they're encyclopedic in the sense of I wanted it not just to be a narrative, but if someone wanted to use it as a reference, like, gee, what was that thing that happened in 1954? Let me look at Dolan's book. Oh, here it is. So if there's particular events that were of importance, I wanted my book to encapsulate them. On the other hand, I also had two historical narratives in there. One was the interaction of the U.S., what I call the national security state, with the UFO phenomenon, and to try to get a sense of its attitudes and policies regarding that. And then the other narrative was really the kind of failed fight to end UFO secrecy that started up in the mid-1950s and, and culminated in the late 60s primarily. And really what I tried to do in that book is to weave these three separate things together into something that was coherent. Okay, well, fine. And I, I'm happy I'm, I didn't come out well enough. The, the second volume is along the same lines, except that there's much more intellectual uh, debate that has occurred in the last 30 years over this topic. So, for example, you have the whole de abduction debate. All right, I, I can't write this book without dealing with some of the complexities and arguments about abductions or crop circles or cattle mutilations or, you know, half a dozen other things that remote viewing, hell, or, or channeling alien spirits, these, these arguments. Not that I really intended to deal with them very much, actually. I don't, but there are so many subtopics that come up, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to work those into the narrative in as uh, unobtrusive a way as I can. Well, is that possible, Rich? Well, I mean, it, it, see, that's the problem. Once you start to delve off into these, what I would consider subtopics, is it possible to hold well, together that currency? Abductions is not really a subtopic. Abductions is a major part of it. I mean, it's a subtopic in a sense, but it's critically important. Well, I meant like crop still, circles. I mean, to be quite frank, I mean, right. crop circles are. This is it. I mean, there are, you know, as a historian, it's not really my. I don't need to lay down a final judgment 
as to what I think the truth mm -hmm. or non-truth of this is. What sure. I need to do is report. And the fact is that the crop circle controversy is, is part, it's an important part of the whole UFO argument over the past few decades. And so for me to avoid that, I feel that that would be negligent on my part. Whatever my opinion on crop circles is, you know, ditto with something like cattle mutilations. It's the same exact type of phenomenon. There have been researchers from the get-go who said that the mutes are really a totally separate thing and that they have nothing to do with UFOs. There are other researchers who feel exactly the opposite of this. And so these are uh, aspects of the phenomenon that I think deserve a hearing. And that doesn't mean that I need to provide the definitive treatment of them, but I, I am treating them. And working, working these thematic aspects in is just one more thing that, you know, complicates things. But it's going in. I mean, I have to be honest with you. Do I think I can do it? Yes, I do. Hmm? Uh, because a lot of it's already been done. And I think it's, it's quite satisfactory. So it's just a matter of getting the whole thing done. It's not, you know, can I do it on a conceptual basis? I know that I can. It's just, will I be able to um, get it done before the end of the world in 2012? <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> that was, that was a, a nice way to cap that. That was good. That was a joke. Boom, boom, I'm not a um, 2012er per se, like some people are 2012ers, as I call them. Although, hey, you know what? It's quite possible to be right for the wrong reasons. It's just as it's possible to be wrong for the right reasons. And it could very well be, I'm sure you might agree, that the 2012ers might be right even if for the wrong reasons. You're listening to No Lies Radio, coming to you 24-7 from the San Francisco Bay Area, north of Berkeley. Your radio station for the truth, peace, justice, freedom, and more power to the people. We're thrilled that you're listening to this archived episode of the Paracast. If you want to hear the latest shows, click on over to www.theparacast.com. You can also join in on the most intelligent and dynamic discussions on our forums regarding all of the topics we discuss on the Paracast. So remember, www.theparacast.com. We'll see you there soon. That's right. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're spending our evening with Richard Dolan. And I wanted to talk about the subject that you raised earlier, disclosure. And, of course... Yeah, we never resolved it, did we? So, we never no. resolved we the can. issue of disclosure. And, of course, you know, we all think of, of course, of Dr. Greer. But I think we should look at the larger picture here, then. And that is, if we were to reveal that UFOs were real, either from other planets, other dimensions, whatever, how would the public accept this kind of news? And as a corollary to that question, do you think we're being prepared? First question, I would say, I don't think people are very well prepared. Actually, that answers both. Uh, a perfect, for instance, I remember about a year ago, I, was, I had my kids at uh, some place, library, we're at a library, and uh, there was a mom with her kids, and I was just chatting with this lady, and she took out this, like, this UFO book for kids. I've like seen juvenile. it. Yeah, I've well, there's a few one. of yep. them out there. You know, like a little juvenile, like the UFO mystery, you know, pro and con and this type of thing. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. So I said, hey, you know, I write about that. Uh, so she became interested and was chatting with me because she was interested, I think, to some extent in the UFO thing. But here's what happened. I chatted with her for two, three minutes. And I don't often realize how I can come across. I mean, I mean, I just bam, bam, fact, fact, fact. This is what I think. Most people have a very kind of, they'll get their feet wet. Oh, gee, I wonder if there's aliens out there. And that's the extent of their interest. And here I am saying, well, yeah, I've, 
I believe that they're here. They're they're down here on the ground, and that there's uh, this is grand cover up, and uh, but there are these beings. So I started talking with her about aliens being down here, and uh, this grand cover up, and all this subterranean stuff, and she got this look of fear in her face. I could see mm. it plain as day, and and she just said, "Look, I don't really think I want to talk about this anymore." And I thought. I was just getting started. <laughs> but she was at a point where this had become, it had gone from being this little intellectual curiosity to suddenly, here's this guy who seemed to know what he was talking about, who's talking about it as, it, as if it's real. It's real. It's not just this little what if they're out there kind of. And so uh, to answer your question, I mean, are people prepared? I really think they're not. But then when you, you think about disclosure, no one's ever prepared for anything that happens in this world. I mean, we're always caught blindsided by everything, and we have to adapt. My feeling is if we ever get to a point where the, the truth comes out, whatever that truth is, assuming it's relatively complete truth at that, because you never really know, right? There's always going to be spin, whoever's giving you this truth. Well, sure. But let's say, let's say part of the truth is that these other aliens can communicate, um, I don't know, telepathically. I mean, there certainly are reasons to think that that may be so. And what if, or here's a couple of truths that may really freak us out. What if we learn that some of them look like us, and maybe they live among us? Mm-hmm. Or what if we find that maybe if they're not us directly, that they've been breeding us separately and using those humans to infiltrate uh, the human power structure? I mean, hell, think about it. If I were an alien, it might be something that I would want to do. I'd be looking at these humans thinking, well, yeah, we can certainly take them in a fight, but maybe I also want to be able to manipulate their society to a certain extent and make things easier. And so to that end, I might seek to influence uh, key human decision makers and have them, you know, amenable to uh, to what I want. And if that's so, if we were to learn that, what if we were to learn that some of these aliens actually have been manipulating human society, kind of like a variation on the David Icke scenario? What if, what if it's true to some extent? What if we learn that our military has been fighting some of these aliens for a long time? Uh, what if we learn that they've been guiding us all along? What if, or if they created us or invented us? Uh, there's a well, lot of things that we may yeah. not... Yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, that that actually, Rich, leads right to uh, something we've been talking about on the Paracast lately, which is something that by UFO quote-unquote believers is considered to be sort of heresy. But, you know, what if is a really good question. What if we're talking about a species that has been on the Earth longer than humans, that is actually the top of the food chain on this planet, not us? What if human evolution and human development has been not only influenced by these creatures but done in a way to benefit them and perhaps not us what do you think happens then i mean at that point this whole notion of living in a bubble of denial and crass materialism right that just implodes it would would, absolutely it would take us back to the mentality uh, comparable to some ancient peoples who would look at the gods not as always these beneficent creatures, but, but as super powerful beings that you had to appease and keep them happy. And they weren't all nice. You know, ancient Sumerians, I mean, you go back to some of that literature, they were very clear. Some of these gods were really kind of nice, and we would try to propitiate them, and others, stay away. Don't mess with them. That might be what we would come back to. There's other questions, too, I mean, of a more practical import. So, for example, I t- we talked earlier about energy. I mean, what if they had a source of energy that could be our potential salvation but could also be a real problem in the sense of we may not be able to control it sufficiently to prevent, you know, huge bombs from being created. If we get access to free energy, that might not be a good thing. 
after all, because think about oil. I mean, for a century, oil almost was pra practically free when you would get right down to it. It was as free an energy source as we would ever have, have had up to that point. Easy to transport, and we essentially trashed the entire planet on the basis of that. And not simply because of the pollution involved, but we, we hacked, oil allowed us to hack through the rainforest and just destroy the, the lungs of the earth and to sort of terraform the globe in a way that wiped out entire species. So free energy is not necessarily a good thing for us human beings. Here's another one, though. What if, through the revelation of UFO reality, we discover that to some extent these other beings are able to manipulate time? Now, look, it depends on who you talk to. I, I've spoken to people who think time travel is a lot of crap. Other people who don't feel this way. Um, I do know, as a, as a layperson, that time and space are not what my common sense tell me. And mm -hmm. we've known since really guys like Einstein and, um, and other relativity physics that tell us it's a, it's a continuum and that space and time are affected by things like gravity and by the speed through which you're traveling. That they're, in other words, if they're not the objective on altered phenomena that we tend to think in our common sense. So what if they figured out a way to, to mess with time? And what if we learn a secret about how to do that? Could we be dangerous if we learn to jump through time? Just, just a what if. And then if we learn that we possess uh, certain spiritual or psychic abilities through the advent of disclosure. So let's say, you know, we discover that these aliens here, they're able to communicate with us telepathically, and that if we do a certain few things, whether we enhance ourselves technologically or spiritually, that we can do the same. I mean, these could be good and bad things that happen, but in all likelihood, are we ready? My feeling is we'll never, ever be ready, just like no married couple is ever ready for kids until the kids <laughs> get there. Really true. Uh, my wife and I have two kids now, and they're growing up just fine, but... I remember we were married for several years thinking, oh, well, no, we're not ready for kids. There's just no way, no way. And then, soon, boom, she's pregnant. And we're like, oh, okay, I guess we have to be ready now. <laughs> Maybe, hopefully, if we're lucky, that might be a similar thing with disclosure. So you have people panicking for a certain period of time. But, you know, ultimately, uh, I don't think UFO disclosure will cause a kind of Orson Welles scenario where people jump out of their buildings because most people have families to support. They have jobs. They have they have a life they have to live. And so I think that life would go on. And what would happen, though, is that I don't believe that the U.S. political system would survive a disclosure. Mm -hmm. And this is one reason I think that people in power just don't want it to happen. I mean, when you consider how long this secret has been kept, I just keep thinking of Gorbachev, and uh, sometimes I mention him too much, but I can't help but think that this is one of the most apt analogies. I mean, Gorbachev comes into power in 1985. The Soviet Union had been around at that point for almost 70 years, and uh, living a very fundamental type of series of lies. Falsified history, you know, I mean, people just expunged from the books again and again. Gorbachev comes in talking about openness, holy cow, and restructuring. This was an amazing thing. And six years later, that country had ceased to exist. Hmm. And it's not that Gorbachev just came in planning to dismantle the Soviet Union, certainly not, but the process of reform spiraled out of his control. So when you start having openness, 
then the people in Azerbaijan say, hey, open us, great. We don't want to be in your country. The Baltic states, ditto. Hey, you took us over in 1940. Mm-hmm. really never liked that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so on. And he tries to say, well, no, no, I didn't mean that. But it was too late. Cats out of the bag, yeah. That's right. And the same thing with disclosure here on the UFO topic. This is such a big topic. It's such a massive lie, such a massively important thing, hidden from people, and it will reveal, I guarantee this, when it comes out, it will have to reveal an infrastructure that is, as uh, some people have argued, it's gone totally black, it's totally private, completely beyond public control. And I believe that it will become out in the open that we've had basically ruled by gangsters for the last 50, 60 years, in the sense that these people have done an end run around formal governmental processes to fund this research program, which I think has been extremely expensive. I mean, there is missing money from our budget all the time, every year. We're talking many, many billions of dollars that just disappear. And I believe that, that some of this money is going into um, ET research uh, R&D. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And we have the pleasure of spending the evening with Richard Dolan. I can't think of a better way to sit here and kind of talk about the implications of the presence of UFOs. He's author of UFOs in the National Security State. And if we give him a little bit of luck, maybe he'll get volume two finished before the end of the year. David? Well, not only is it the political system that would implode, uh, but it seems to me that any kind of disclosure that now all of a sudden incorporates the discussion of another species and advanced species pretty much destroys most religious organizations as as well maybe not destroys them but certainly impacts them in a negative sense and between you know the current political powers and the corporate powers that don't want this to happen and then the tremendous power you have with the church for example it seems like uh, given those two sets of or those three sets of uh, parties that don't want disclosure how is it even possible disclosure could happen rich seems like by that basis it's never going to happen they have no incentive for disclosing that is absolutely true david but the, the thing is this no matter how powerful those forces on the other side are the fact is that th- there's one thing that proponents of disclosure have and they will always have it and that is that is a fundamental access fundamental hold on on something that's true the truth they have the truth. But so do that, people want the truth? This is well, this is the part that scares me. Many people don't. I agree with you. But the truth is something that's not going to go away. It's going to continue coming up. And so mm-hmm. this is why, like over the last 50, 60 years, every decade since World War II has shown at least one major effort at breaking that wall of secrecy. It happened every less than 10 years. It happened in the 40s at the very end, and it was aborted, and it didn't happen. 1950s. 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I'm delineating all of this in my book. They all basically fail. Yes, that's true. But what's interesting to me is that when one failed, another attempt started up. So this is an issue that will not go away. Uh, just like in a you know game of hockey, you can't score unless you take a few shots on goal. And the idea is to keep working at it. The uh, UFO issue will not go away because there is a fundamental core of truth about it that is continually being denied. Now... This is why I'm saying I I can't see the future, but I do believe that we're in such a radical period of change, politically and technologically and economically, that it's a very bumpy path right now, and that it's in that kind of situation where something big can jostle free. And I I believe that if it happens, it will happen very suddenly. 
whether someone gets the you know the one bit of video footage that everyone's been hoping for, or whether someone leaks a bit of information that becomes very difficult to deny. I think that's a very possible route. Uh, I don't know, but I believe that we're in a we're not in a stable period of history, and so for that reason, I think really? that there are possibilities. How that'll happen, I don't know. Here's something uh, I wanted to point out regarding the uh, all this black budget and all this theft of money. A fact that. I think every American, every world citizen should know. Uh, just before 9-11, Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense, was talking to the House Appropriations Committee, uh, talking about the fiscal year budget uh, for the next year of Pentagon spending, I think for fiscal year 2002. So he was talking about money that was missing from the Pentagon in uh -huh. the official computations. You guys may, not, may, may know about this, but I have the quote right here. This is a direct quote from, from the Pentagon itself, from their website. Rumsfeld says to, to Congress, the financial systems of the Department of Defense are so snarled up that we can't account for some $2.6 trillion in transactions oh, that exist. Oh, 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 that's possible. Direct quote. Oh, $2.6 trillion. Now, to get a handle... Oh, on how much money that is. Oh, man. The official, the 2001 budget for the Pentagon was about $310 billion, about one-eighth of that amount. All right, so what he was saying oh. to Congress was that we can't account for eight times our annual budget oh. in our transactions. Now, ah, if I were a member of Congress right then and there, oh, I like to think I would have said, whoa, stop right there, sir. Back up. Back up yeah. What is that? Can, can you imagine if someone? In, well, can you imagine if someone in corporate America got up in front of their shareholders and made that kind right. of an announcement? Right. Oh, pandemonium! Pandemonium! How do you lose eight times your annual budget? I can't even. I cannot imagine how such a thing is possible, except if you start looking at how how federal agencies may very likely be used as as cutouts for other kinds of activities. Former number two person at HUD, uh, Catherine Austin Fitz, she was number two at Housing and Urban Development under Bush Sr. is probably, in my opinion, the leading analyst on black budget economics. Uh, she's got a website, she's very smart, she's an accounting whiz, that sort of thing. Uh, she's been arguing for years that trillions of dollars have been disappearing from the federal government, uh, has argued very persuasively that for a long time HUD itself was a kind of a cutout operation for drug trafficking and securities fraud money that was just flowing through it. So in other words, if, you, if you've got these illegal monies, you've got to clean up or launder, right? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. How do you do it? Well, you go through major banks, offshore banks, Cayman Islands, Chase Bank in New York, but you also, she argues, can use uh, federal agencies, and money just gets washed through. So there's all this funny money going through the Pentagon, and if you're running an illegal operation or a non-governmental operation, you want to keep it private, maybe one of the best things is to have these unvouchered monies to, to work with, like an ET technology program, for instance. So that, back to the whole point of disclosure, if you acknowledge that this is real, now you've acknowledged that there's a cover-up. Now, at some point, journalists are going to start being a little brave enough to start inquiring, but wait a minute, how did this whole thing work in terms of... Mm -hmm the logistics of the cover-up, and I think that th that will open up this whole morass of illegality, and that, I think, is what would spiral out of control, and I think that truly could bring down the government. Uh, if it comes out enough, uh, I think there's only so much 
people can take. It wasn't in the movie Network that people said, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah, that's Howard, that's Howard right. Beals. That's that Network, line. man. That's it. Oh, yeah. That, mm. that, so we're back to Network again. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's going to be a point where people are not going to take it at some point. I mean, Americans right now are kind of ticked over a lot of things regarding their government. They know that they're driving in this car that they're not even in control of the steering wheel. Someone else has been driving this thing, and they're taking them down a road they don't want to go. So they're already not happy. They're not happy about losing their economy to China, losing their jobs to China. They're not happy about a lot of stuff. If they find out that on top of this, transnational corporations have basically gotten their hooks into the U.S. government and are in control of this ET-derived technology, they'll be pissed. And I don't know what will happen. Maybe good things will happen. Maybe bad things will happen as a result. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're discussing with Richard Dolan the possible impact of disclosure. David? It, it makes you wonder what it's going to take, guys. I once had a political science teacher who told me something I've never forgotten. He said that no country is three meals away from a revolution. I've always thought about that, and I've always thought about what it would take in this country to stir the populace to realize that the things that are being done in their name, um, the things that are being done with their money are just so heinous that if they really knew, they would not sleep at night anymore. And I believe that this is part of what has caused the current environment in this country of extreme cynicism, of if you look at the use of antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs and the way that they've been distributed to the populace. It's like, or, you know, the stuff to help people sleep. Why do so many people all of a sudden need drugs to help them sleep? Well, you know, if your conscious is screaming loud enough and if your subconscious is boiling away with this underlying knowledge at a, an atomic level that you are engaged in some seriously nasty stuff. And, you know, and again, not to take this in the political direction, but when people talk about the Iraq situation right. and friends of mine and I, we talk about that, I say to them, look, there are two things. A, we're never leaving Iraq. We're building permanent bases there. They're going to require tens of thousands of people. We're never leaving. So get that through your head now. And, you know, they don't want to hear that. And then I it's say, good that you're bringing this up. Well, this is really important because then yes. I say to them, do any of you know what depleted uranium munitions are? And they're like, what? I say to them, you know, what we've effectively done is by this Iraqi a, a, a misadventure, we have now introduced levels of radioactive poison into the environment there that are going to screw up the next, what, 50 generations of Iraqis that are born? Not only them, but, but soldiers are coming back showing the sickness, the radiation sickness from this. And if anybody wants to know what this nightmare looks like, go and track down on the Internet some photos of people who lived around Chernobyl for the last number of years. And if you really, really don't want to sleep at night, go look at this stuff. So the point is that when people start to really, really want to know what is being done in their names and they look at this stuff, I would have thought by now, guys, that the American populace would have absolutely gone crazy over this and would have stormed the White House. I mean, that this stuff is allowed to go on. And I got to tell you something, Rich, because you were saying something before about this, you know, what if we found out that these creatures, whatever they are, had infiltrated our our culture? And what if we had found out certain things? So my lovely girlfriend and I were talking about this this weekend, and, and she had this really dark revelation. 
that and she's very level headed gal though the fact that she's involved with me might might make someone make, question make wonder yeah yeah but yeah, she's really she's a brilliant brilliant girl um brilliant woman and her feeling was you know, we're talking about this and she's been noting my absolute fascination with this this duality of the paranormal world and politics okay. and 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 I don't feel that there's much overlap between these two worlds. She, on the other hand, feels there's the possibility of a huge amount of overlap. And what she said to me this weekend, which I've been thinking about since this weekend, was if we look at the things that our government is doing right now, if we look at not only our government, but the governments of a number of countries, and we look at what the people in power are doing, it does seem, if, if we do the Occam's razor thing, if we, if we stand back, remove all cultural prejudice, and just try to look at this in object with objective eyes. What it almost looks like is some sort of a dark force manipulating the minds, if you would, of the most powerful people in this world to take us to I won't call it a confrontation. She didn't call it a confrontation either, but you know, we're like it seems like every day the situation is getting worse and worse, bringing us closer and closer to a precipice. And it's almost like people seem to feel that. They seem to intuitively know it, and, they, and they're in denial about it. They're, you know, the American the idol. I think she sounds like a keeper. Because I think she's right on. Oh, and it does yeah. look as if that's the case. There, there's another thing that I keep wondering, which is that the, um, the nature of corporate ownership, I wonder if it just simply absolutely demands the, a kind of rapacious destruction of of the world and I mean people who run corporations are you know they're they have families that they love and they have neighbors that they're nice to it's not like they're evil people but that the demand of the corporation or of the bureaucracies that they work in seems to me force them to feed the machine in such a way that they almost can't help it like if you become a, a corporate head of, of ExxonMobil how are you supposed to act in any other way than something that's going to benefit your shareholders if you don't do that, right. then you're out. Right. But the whole, you know, you've got all these major entities around the world that are driven solely to profit their shareholders. And it seems to be just this cumulative effect of, of uh, destroying the environment that we live in. And there's this absolute need for more weapons production because, frankly, that's how they make their money, which is on producing weapons of warfare. And if right. you're going to produce these weapons of warfare, then you got to use them at some point. Yeah, you need wars to use them in. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's a horrible. It's a horrible situation. And uh, I was just going to say something here, but I really have to wonder. I mean, I you talk about not staying awake at night. I actually normally can sleep pretty well, but I can't always sleep well. And I had a hard night last night, as a matter of fact, thinking about stuff just like this. I've wondered many times if we really can as a society, as a civilization, survive much more than another 20 years without something really, really horrible just ripping this whole structure down. And I know I'm not the only one who feels this way. I think that yeah. there are many, many intelligent, thoughtful people, not crazy people, who are afraid of this kind of thing happening in a way that I think people of the past just really, yeah, there was a scare in the 1950s of the nuclear uh, exchange, and I've talked to older older folks who remind me of this. Mm -hmm. I just don't believe it's the same. I don't think it's the same order of magnitude. And certainly earlier years, the destruction of human civilization was just not something that you'd think about, uh, and yet we think about it now. So and, and in all this mix are these other beings, these non-humans that 
apparently are here. They're flying around. They're in the atmosphere. They're in the oceans. They're like a wild card, it seems to me. You know, we got the greatest show in the quadrant going on right now. That is humanity's impending <laughs> flame out. And they're here watching this show. It's either great entertainment for them, you know, replete with popcorn and soda, or, or maybe they're doing something in relation to that, either pro or against. Uh, well, maybe we're out. part of the reality show, and it's like Candid Camera. They know what's going on, but we don't, if you remember the TV show Candid Camera. Yes. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the podcast right. with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're spending our evening with Richard Dolan. I can't think of a better way to have an enjoyable, thought-provoking session. Richard is author of UFOs in the National Security State, and they have Volume 1 available. He's working hard on Volume 2. Hopefully, he'll get finished by the end of the year. We will where He's trying very hard. We will encourage him. But indeed, that's also the danger right there, that we're part of this reality show. We don't know what they're doing, but they sure know what they're doing to us. Yeah, yeah, or, or maybe... I don't know if they're doing it to us. Maybe they're doing it to us. But I have to think that there are there's a vantage point here that most of us are not privy to, but that some people are privy to. And, you know, what if... I hate to be such a downer, guys. Uh, we all know, don't we, that there's just too many people on this planet, right? I think we're all kind of getting that. Yes, there are some people out there who say, no, no, it's not that we don't have too... Not that we have too many, so we don't have enough. You could fit all the people in this world in one of the United States. Well, that's true if you want to stand them shoulder to shoulder, but these people need resources. And uh, we have six and a half billion people now in this world. And can we really be supported uh, much longer no. on the kind no. of energy system that we have, right? No. No, I mean, everything not. is dependent on oil. Everything. It's not just the gas. It's our food. It's every. It's our computers, our petroleum-dependent. The whole process to make computers is very petroleum-dependent. Uh, everything. We, you can't have six and a half people billion, uh, six and a half billion people living without petroleum. There's only one thing that they can do, and that's die, unless we get something to replace that petroleum. And this is really the, the practical element, the truly practical element, in my opinion, on the UFO problem, which is that there is a technology. I believe that there's a technology in there that must be uh, a way out because whoever's operating these UFOs, they found a way out. They're using that technology. So theoretically, it should be available to us, and maybe we can't be trusted with it, but we're at the point where what we're doing right now is not working. It's yeah, not it's just not sustainable. Long. No, we're at the no. dead end. So this is like uh, you know Doug Flutie Hail Mary pass. You know, <laughs> right at the end of the football game, and this is it. And I'm fourth down, long so, yardage to go. What do you tell people who want to be optimistic about this, Rich? Can one be optimistic about this outcome? Uh, I'm not a great fan of optimism, and that, I don't mean to sound funny. I think, look, if you're sleeping and, and your house is on fire, but you're having this really wicked, cool dream, uh, <laughs> maybe you don't want to be woken up from your dream. Yeah. Okay, fine, you'd rather dream, but look, your house is on fire, so let's do something about it. We have to wake up from this dream. Optimism and hope, we always say, well, we need hope. I've come to feel that, why do you need hope? 
Hope is something that takes you, first of all, out of the present moment of living. I mean, after all, all we've got is this moment is right this. now. Yeah, if you're focused on the future, you're focused on the past, then you're kind of spinning out of your present moment, which is really what we have, which is the miracle of our existence anyway. So let's first appreciate what we're in, not worry about the future. It's hard because I have children and, and we all want to live and so on. But look, I mean, the fact is that what is human life but it, a very difficult ordeal it's always been a difficult ordeal people have always had to die they've always died too young people have have uh, lived in poverty grinding poverty for thousands and thousands of years and that's just how it is we've gone through the last 150 200 years of a certain kind of energy intensive civilization in which we've forgotten that that has been the, that was the norm of human existence Yes. We got access to this really cool stuff, you know, wood, then coal, then oil, then nuclear. We're like, wow, it's just getting better and better. Suddenly, boom, dead end, brick wall, unless we find a way over that wall. And if we don't, then we're going to be right back to the kind of existence. Eventually, we'll come back down to that level of existence. Uh, at first, we're going to fall even farther. And we're not going to fall back to the 17th, 18th century, I wish. That'd be great. You know, wooden ships, spinning wheels. Okay, fine. I'll deal with that. Well, at least I can see there are advantages to that. I mean, we won't have to worry about personal computers crashing. Yeah, right. <laughs> of course, we wouldn't right, have to exactly. worry about having radio shows because there would be no radios. Nope. You have to grow the potatoes and the carrots and uh, feed your cattle. If, if we'd be lucky enough. I mean, frankly, yeah. if we really had a collapse of infrastructure, I mean, no one knows how to do that stuff. Really, who, you know, raise chickens, milk cattle, you know, one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent, maybe? Well, no, this is where, yeah, no. Lost those skills. No, this is where, you know, you the people living in the hillsides of South America, the people living in the jungles. Yes, they have to be their time again. They have a livelihood. It's, Correct. It's, it's the users of the world. It's the, the, the resource yeah. depleters. Yeah. We're going to be in a real bad place. And, of course, right. you know, some people would say, well, gee, what's wrong with that? Of course, most of us who are listening to the show would probably fall into that category of being That's resource exactly right. users. All of us. Uh, all of us, pretty if much. If you're an American, you're going to fall into that category. If you're uh, anyone who's got any little bit of money. So we don't want to fall into the that category. little money. Little money is very emphasized, yes. This uh, contact of mine I was talking about before, this high-level guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, we, I had this type of discussion with him on one occasion about the fact that we're in an urgent situation. And he agrees it's an urgent situation, absolutely. And in his own opinion, this is the one thing that could indeed force a disclosure, is the urgency of our global infrastructure situation. In other words, a kind of wild card. If there are forces within the secret holders who believe in not letting the six billion people just starve to death. So if there are people who have this secret who think, oh, wait a minute, I, we have to tell people this, that that actually could be the, the one thing that forces the secret out, is in other words, uh, our impending infrastructure right. crunch. You're, you're assuming here the people involved oh. care about anyone other than themselves. You know, look, we that's have the food, right. we have the power. Exactly. You know what? We'll have a couple of billion less people on the planet. We'll just own more of it for ourselves. Hey, we have about well, three or four right. minutes left here, Richards. So I just want to let you know that, that yeah. we're just about running out of time. Go ahead. Well, I think that you've, you've laid it out very well there in that last statement. And in fact, another individual, uh, another 
top-level secret guy I talked to. Actually, when he was in the loop, oh, about uh, 10 years ago, late 90s, said to me that the there is an MJ-12 type of group, uh, that it's essentially international, it's not just U.S., and that they are basically owners of the acquired technologies, all, all of that stuff, and that they have a faction. At least they had a faction as of 10 years ago, and it was basically the younger guys against the older guys, the older ones who had made all their money were basically of the more liberal mindset at this point, thinking, let's, I think it's time to, you know, let the secret out. And it was the younger people who hadn't yet made all the money they want to make off of the secret who were the hardliners and who had the upper hand, according to this one uh, source of mine. Take it for what it's worth. Uh, so that cycle, though, is a noxious one. It's just going to repeat itself because there's always going to be the, the newcomers who want control. And look, if what you're saying is that we have to depend potentially on the altruism of the people in these circles. It's a scary then, thought. Man, it's game over at that point. At that point, I mean, I find it very hard as I go into my mid middle age here to remain optimistic. I used to be a hardcore optimist. and Really? Yeah. And, and well, time has eroded. America itself has gone through that transformation. America in the yeah. 60s and 70s was optimistic. Yes. We went through some changes, and in the 90s we started to think, wait, things aren't really, yeah, we got computers and all this, but something's not right. No, 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 Rich. It was the 80s. It was the Reagan years. And, and you know, well, those yeah, were the years. That really, you know, people who were... I want to make it worse to everybody, and I know I'm a little older than you guys, so I'll say, and I guess we have to wrap after this. I think the day John F. Kennedy was killed, Ah, I think everything after that, it took a couple of decades, started going downhill, but that's another subject. Richard, can we look for any public appearances from you in the next few months? Yes, indeed. In fact, this whole thing about this closure, this argument, I'm having a, I'll be in Roswell, New Mexico for the Roswell weekend of the 4th, like everyone's going to be there. And one of the things I'm doing is having a, an open debate with my friend Stephen Bassett over disclosure, uh, whether it can happen. Bassett, he's going to argue that it must and will happen, and I'm going to argue uh, that, that it probably won't happen anytime soon. Uh, that will be in Roswell. I will be speaking at the MUFON International Con- Conference uh, Symposium in Denver in August, doing a bunch, bunch of things, uh, ex- ex-politics uh, conference in near D.C. Uh, in September, and then uh, the Crash Retrieval Conference sponsored by Ryan and Bob Wood in November, I believe. I'll tell you what, we'll I, link to your site, Richard, so as you have updates, yeah, people I, just I have to click on, on your name. Actually, I did. Sure, we just I, have I wanted this year to be a quiet year. I really didn't uh-huh. look to do any public speaking at all, and it's nice to be loved. It's nice to have people want me to speak. The thing is, every time I, I do a speaking engagement, it takes more time. This year, though, I've got, I've got one basic presentation that I'm kind of giving, which is a lot of the stuff we've talked about, basically my take on how the structure of power in the world works today and how it affects UFO secrecy and, and all that kind of thing. And we know that we're going to beg you for another two hours, not too distant future, to continue this discussion. Thank you so much. I love much. talking with you guys. I and love we love having you. And Absolutely. thanks for being a friend of the show. Richard Dolan, thanks for joining us on the Paracast. My pleasure. Thanks, Rich. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.
You have been listening to Sci Saturday, Explorations in Paranormal Research. Today you heard Gene Steinberg and David Biedney of the Paracast.com interview Richard M. Dolan, author of UFOs in the National Security State. Today's show was broadcast courtesy of the Paracast.com, and it is archived there. You can listen to the latest show from the Paracast.com, broadcast every Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Go to the Paracast.com to listen. And be sure to join us next Saturday for another edition of PSI Saturday, Explorations in Paranormal Research, right here on No Lies Radio. PSI Saturday is broadcast every Saturday at 7 p.m. Pacific and 10 p.m. Eastern, 0200 hours, GMT Sunday. We're thrilled that you're listening to this archived episode of the Paracast. If you want to hear the latest shows, click on over to www.theparacast.com. You can also join in on the most intelligent and dynamic discussions on our forums regarding all of the topics we discuss on the Paracast. So remember, www.theparacast.com. We'll see you there soon. You are listening to NoLiesRadio.org, broadcasting 24 by 7 to the entire planet from the San Francisco Bay Area just north of Berkeley. The opinions expressed on this station are not necessarily the views of this station, its management, or its staff, but they are those of a growing number of American people who now realize that they have been lied to.